0: And we will be in Colossians, a letter written to a young church, not that dissimilar from us as Connection Church. And I want to maybe catch you up and and bring you up to speed with where we've been going in this book for the last couple of weeks. And then we'll dig into Colossians chapter 2 and read the last half of that chapter. And hopefully maybe God will speak to us through that in a powerful way. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been reading a letter that was not written to us. This letter was not addressed to Sioux Falls, but it was addressed to a church in Colossae. And so we are reading this letter of the Colossians. And it's simply some good news spoken to this church in order to correct them, encourage them, and to give them some tools that they needed that would be healthy for them in the long term. And so we read this Because this is something that we want for ourselves. We want to hear this good news, be rooted in it and built up in it, that our encouragement might come from what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so, piece by piece, we've been digging through Colossians. Um, I warned you a few weeks ago, doing so is like drinking from the fire hose. There's more coming at you at such a rapid pace than you could possibly handle. And there's so many terms, so many concepts, so many pictures painted of God and who Jesus is that we would probably could spend our entire lives trying to grasp it and understand it. But our hope is to maybe pull out some of the most prominent ones, the themes that exist throughout the rest of the Bible that come to apex here in Colossians, uh, but also to maybe just grab some stuff that are highly practical for you and me as we live here, apply the gospel to the questions we have in everyday life. And piece by piece, we've been walking through this. And Colossians starts with this very high, grand, lofty picture of Jesus as the greatest of all things. That is, he is not only is is he amazing and he's eternal, but he was around at the creation of the earth. And so everything that is brought into existence has been brought into existence through Jesus, for Jesus' sake, and ultimately held together by Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. He really is a big deal. And there's a sense in which if we grasp this and begin to grab hold of it, there's no way in which we can overstate how great Jesus is. What's left for us really, and what we're guilty of on a regular basis, is not making much of Jesus. Not making enough of Jesus because He is before all things. In Him, all things hold together. At the very beginning of all things, when they came together, they were coming together for the sake of making much of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. So there's a sense in which I can stand here and yell at the top of my lungs and I still will fail to make as much of Jesus as he deserves. He's that amazing. What he's done for us is that transformative. It's the root of all things, and it's the identity that we find. It's the identity that doesn't go away. It's the kind of identity that the world cannot shake, no matter what happens, no matter what you endure. When we root ourselves in this and find our identity in what Jesus has done for us, we find that he never takes it back, he never retracts his offer. So things become much more practical. Beginning in chapter 2, and so we'll begin reading in chapter 2, verse 6. Overlap what we covered last week and read to the end of the chapter. So if you've got a Bible, let's jump in. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Let God speak to us as He might. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so also walk in Him, rooted, built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. For in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. For these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. For if Christ, if, excuse me, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are accused, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Since Jesus Christ has forgiven our sin, since Jesus has canceled our debt to God that we could never pay on our own, then let us focus all of our attention, all of our energy on what He has done and who He is and less attention on what we have done or what we might do. Since Jesus is the fullness of God present on the earth, since Jesus is the fullness of deities, the power of God to forgive and to judge present and walking among us, like a regular human being. And since Jesus is that, accomplishing these things like forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, redemption before God, then let us focus on what He has done and less on what we might do. Less on what we have done, more on what He has done. Less on what we do from here on out and more on what He has done for us. And essentially Colossians, this letter is revolving around that idea. Jesus has done something. Let's believe it in such a way that it changes the way we live. Let's not just believe in something that ultimately we're hypocritical about and we live a life inconsistent with that which we believe. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Having an intellectual assent for truth but having no real application, right? So we intellectually assent that we should not operate cell phones while driving a car. We're not better drivers when we're also looking at our phone, right? We would all agree with that. We would all believe it but there's a sense in which our practices and our actual driving habits probably betray what we believe. And we might intellectually go, yeah, we're probably not a better driver when you're reading your email while driving. And yet we still, even though we believe it, might do something different. And so in verse 6, as we read, there's this connection that ought to be made with what we believe and understand to be true about what God has done for us in Jesus and how we live. Verse 6, it says, Therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So in the same way that we believe that Jesus is awesome, so also you should walk in Him. And to say that Jesus is in charge of all things, that Jesus created all things, but then take the reins in our own lives for ourselves is to betray what we say that we believe. And last week we saw that there's a temptation that even though we might believe that Jesus is great, to kind of fill in and try to supplement what we believe about Jesus with our own good ideas. And so there's a warning about how we shouldn't practice something different than that which we believe. We shouldn't ultimately think that Jesus is above all, but then try to explain the world in different terms. It's not that those terms are irrelevant or unuseful. It's just that ultimately they have the potential to point us away from the good thing that Jesus has done for us in Jesus. So philosophy, it says, deceitful teachings, human traditions. There's nothing evil about philosophy. There's nothing evil about human traditions, right? Don't go beat up a philosopher because of this, right? There's nothing evil about a philosopher. But if there's a sense in which we would rather explain the world in terms other than what God has done for us in Jesus, then we might be missing out on an amazingly good thing. So we had to walk according to this thing. Why should we walk? Because God has done something for us and he has marked us through Jesus that changes us intimately. And so last week we talked about a topic that was brought up in Colossians that I wouldn't naturally bring up at a cocktail party and that is circumcision. And there's this tradition that's held by people in which there's an intimate mark, and again, if you wonder about this, ask your parents. I'm not going to explain it, but there's an intimate scarring, an intimate cutting, an intimate bleeding that takes place that's meant to remind us of the intimate nature in which Jesus has transformed us. And the symbol of circumcision is no longer applicable to us because the symbol of baptism paints the full and complete picture of Jesus because, after all, He is the one who bled. He is the one who was scarred for our sake. And in so doing, it says here in verse 15 that he took that which was against us and he nailed it to the cross. And he shamed the rule and authority. The big, powerful, bad Roman government made a practice of shaming people publicly in the process of crucifixion. And instead of killing them quickly, they made a habit of killing people as slowly as possible. And so they would slowly, publicly, shamefully kill people who went against and undermined their government most powerful government that lasted longer than any empire that we're even aware of in human history and in their attempt to shame jesus a movement started that all due respect to caesar has outlasted the roman empire such that now, 2,000 years later, you and I and others in this city get together in homes and in buildings, and we celebrate that Jesus has done something. And we don't mention how great Caesar is, because in Caesar's attempt to make a mockery of Jesus, Jesus made a mockery of all things, showing how great he might triumph over them. And we celebrate that. Jesus has done something. It's so big, And it's significant, there's this transaction that takes place in which Jesus didn't just simply die a disconnected death, but there's something else going on. Did you catch those words in verse 14? It says that he took that which was against us, the debt we had to God for our brokenness, for our poor decisions, and he nailed them to the cross. So now we're talking in the world of synecdoche, right? We're talking in the world of metaphor. There's an analogy being made here that it wasn't only Jesus that died, but it was also everything that was against you and me. And now we have identity in Him, so that as you caught it again, we were now buried with Him and were raised with Him. And that which was broken in us was nailed to the cross publicly and shamelessly, or excuse me, shamefully. And that which was dead in us was buried, but now is alive. And now the cross is not a symbol of shame, but it is a, it is a symbol for you and me of victory. And the sign of the cross is a symbol of Jesus' victory over all things. So therefore, if Jesus has done something that's so amazing and so big, let us focus on that. Let us live our lives according to that. Let us make decisions in light of that. Why is that important? Because right here we see a warning, a practical application. It says in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, drink, or regards to festivals or new moons or sabbaths these are simply a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to jesus so evidently there's a group of people in this at the beginning stages of this church in Colossae, and colossi and they were making much of some important ritual practices and they were saying hey you need to follow these rules and they had rules with respects to food and drink. Now we saw this in the book of Acts that the first Christians who who came to follow Christ, they were originally Jews, and they had some really strict important rules that pointed to how holy and perfect God was, and by adhering to those rules we begin to participate in his holiness. But then along comes this really cool thing in Acts chapter 10, which we hopefully lovingly call the bacon chapter, in which a guy by the name of Peter gets a message from God that pigs are no longer nasty. Now, for you and me, thank God, there's no shame in eating bacon. We do so and we celebrate Jesus and what he's done for us in the process. The reason we do that is so that in the same way we know that something nasty and awful, you just have to drive a few blocks that way and you can smell it, something disgusting like a pig that wallows in its own filth, can actually be made into something quite delicious. And in the same way, more infinitely so, you and I, in our rebellious hearts, and our filthy, dark, disgusting hearts, and our desire to wallow in our own filth, can be made by God's mercy in Jesus into something beautiful. Not because we're good, because we would readily return back to the filth, but because God has declared us righteous and clean in Jesus. And there were people in this church who were teaching that we should continue to adhere to these rules and laws so that we might be righteous and be right before God. But remember, if Jesus has done something that is greater than all things, then let's focus more on that and less on what we do. Because there was a sense in which some some way that they were applying these rules, which were not bad, These rules are never abolished, but instead they're fulfilled in Jesus. They're not bad. There should be some rules about what you eat and drink, when and where you do it, how you celebrate festivals. This is important. For example, in the last week, there's this thing called Mardi Gras, and which was, I mean, it has roots in the Christian tradition, and yet it's the most like, "Ah, I man, let's call it the most sinful celebration um, that, that exists, and it has roots in Jesus, right? So, Let's just be clear. There's a good and bad way to celebrate things. There are good and bad traditions. But if our focus is more on them and less on Jesus, then we're missing the good news. That these are mere shadows. They're shadows. The substance is Jesus. This is important for us, I think. We're, We're in a culture that is obsessed with the shadows more than the substance. Um... We prefer the appearance of a thing over the identity of a thing. We are more fixated with how something appears and looks than how it actually is. So, for example, something going on um, for the last couple of decades is consumer debt is just skyrocketing in America, right? Skyrocketing. Um, And rather than have money and be wealthy, we would rather go into debt and appear as though we were. Right? So rather than just having money in our pockets, we would rather have the symbols of wealth. And so we, every day, we are encouraged to go into debt. We're encouraged to go to great lengths to have the symbols of wealth. But very rarely are there commercials that encourage you to actually be wealthy. Most of those commercials only come come on in the middle of golf tournaments. That's another subject for another day. Right? But, But there's very little coming at us like, hey, you need to have the substance of, of your wealth, the focus of your attention. Instead, it's like, dude, buy this flat-screen TV. Buy this new technology. Have this new thing that looks cool. Dress this way. You see this in this whole, the trend of name brands, right? So there's, there's some name brands that, reco- that, that are like a symbol of quality. You know, if you buy this brand, it's going to last, right? You know, I, there's some, I think of like outdoor gear. You don't want to buy the cheap stuff when you're climbing Mount Everest, Right? You don't want to be the guy that dies freezing on Mount Everest because you bought the cheap jacket, right? There's a sense in which there are name brands that symbolize quality, okay? Anything that your life is on the line, you're going to want to buy the name brand. But there's also this other area of name brand marketing that exists that has nothing to do with quality. It's because the brand symbolizes wealth, right? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm going to I, I apologize because this is just as good. I'll get to the dudes in a second here, but for, for the females, like, is, is that bag that much better at carrying your junk because it costs four or $500, right? No, I mean, carry your beautiful bag. They're awesome. That's great. But, like, is it that much? I mean, just practically speaking, is that bag better at carrying the stuff that you have? Right? Is, like, I spend $500, so therefore it's great. So, you know, apply the logic. Should you take that bag up Mount Everest, Right, this is. I, I spent this much money on this. I don't want to even name any names. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here. Um, so, like, I bought this name. it usually have symbols, and you know what they look like, ladies. And and are you prepared to carry that bag up Mount Everest? Say, like a five hundred dollar backpack would be. Or is it possible that that is a symbol of wealth? It's a symbol. Again, there's no evil. Don't hear me wrong. Don't like go set them on fire. If that's what God calls you to do, great. But we're more obsessed with the symbol of the thing. Then the identity of the thing. Do you carry that bag because you really had 500 extra bucks that you just decided to buy a bag with? Right? Because just so you won't think I'm picking on the girls, guys do this as well, right? Because we do it in just, we buy huge toys. And I, I don't know why. Um, guys do this as well. And their symbols look different. Sometimes their symbols, forgive me, are in real tree camo, right? Don't just pick on the girls for accessorizing. But right now, guys, if, if you like, start fishing, hunting or any sort of sport, there is like, this infinite amount of gear you can buy to go with it. I remember when I went hunting when I was a child, and we wore old beat-up stuff and trudged across the snow. And now you can spend 1,000 dollars on a hunting jacket, hunting hunting thermal underwear, hunting boots, and they're all real tree camo, and then we wear those logos around. Maybe maybe that doesn't apply to you. Uh, Maybe you're not the hunter type. Well, then I'll just show you one symbol that I'm guilty of. Want me to step on any toes? But like, I mean, was it because there was just cash sitting around that we threw at those symbols? Could something else have worked just as well? Right. Well, praise you, Apple. These are the things that I, I, I could be wrong, but I'm observing this an obsession with the symbol and appearance of thing rather than the identity of a thing. So much so that there are a lot of people in the world, maybe in this room, who are going into great debt and experiencing a great amount of trouble because they are more obsessed with looking more wealthy than they actually are and less concerned with actually being wealthy. We want the symbols of wealth, but not the identity of wealth. And I would make the argument that that kind of mindset has crept its way and continues to creep its way, not only into the human heart, but into the church. And we are more concerned with the appearance of a thing than we are the identity of a thing. And we would rather appear like the people that fit in to religious culture than to actually have our identity rooted and built up in Jesus Christ. We would rather bow to the gods of Christian culture than we would to actually follow Jesus and carry our cross. We would rather often decorate our house with crosses than to daily carry ours as Jesus called us to do. I shared this with you before, you can walk into any Christian bookstore and you can decorate your house with what's in a Christian bookstore more than what you can actually learn, which is the content of the Christian message, i.e. books. You have to walk past all the trinkets and t-shirts to get to the content of the Christian message at the back of the Christian bookstore. And we tend to affiliate the symbols and the appearance of Christian culture and we find it to be a replacement for actually following Jesus. So, for example, when we talk to people about this thing that Jesus is doing for us, Do we talk about it in terms of the gospel and how he has nailed our debt to the cross? Or do we talk about it in terms of symbols of Christian culture? For example, the last time that you talked to someone about Jesus, you probably did this. Hey, where do you go to church? And we didn't dig into the, what's the gospel? Is Jesus changed your life? Is Jesus all things? By him are all things being held together. And we settled for, hey, where do you go to church? And we just kind of left it at that, right? Have you ever been in that conversation? And you just go, you go to that church, I go to this church. Oh, cool. And we don't talk about Jesus, but we just kind of assume, yeah, you're good, we do it, yeah. I see what you're wearing, I see what you're carrying, I see the symbols, and we assume that the identity is there. And the warning for this church is to make sure that the identity that is found in Christ alone is always at center stage and everything that follows along with it remains secondary. And since Jesus has done something that's greater than all of us put together have ever done, let's focus on what He's done rather than what we do. So these are practical things that are being shared with this. This, 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 is, this is something that exists um, in the last couple hundred years even in Christianity in America. Like what you drink um, what you eat, what you do, where you spend your Sunday morning. These are important things. There are entire groups of Christians who wave this flag. They're like, we're the people who drink this. Or we're the people who don't drink this. right? Or "Or we're the people we meet on this day. Or we're the people who meet at this time and place. These traditions are common. We We, we believe in the same thing. We tend to practice these kinds of festivals. This last week is important. I mean... We started a season in which Christians all over the world call Lent, and we begin to reflect on what it means to be mortal. And we celebrate that one day we will die. And on this last Wednesday, Christians who saw the gospel clearly, hopefully saw this, but they were celebrating one day the ashes on someone's forehead are going to be similar to our ashes or the dust to which we will return. Now, the culture tends to celebrate Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny better. The culture, has no, the culture doesn't know what to do with the season. They don't know how to celebrate, hey, one day we're all going to die. Thank God. This is a weird one. But there, there's some. If, you, if you're looking for some religious practices to observe and then to assume the identity that goes with them, this is a good season of life to be in, right? From Wendy's to who knows what, man, the symbols are going to be clear. They're going to start selling fish. Okay, I don't know how long John Silver's went out of business. That's a shame, but... They're celebrating Lent year-round and we shame them for it. Okay, this is just my own hate coming out. Forget that. But you're going to see some symbols that have religious roots. And is our focus more on the practice and those traditions and those symbols or is it going to be about Jesus? Walk into Wendy's. They're going to have a special on fish sandwiches for the next few weeks. Is it because their identity is found in Jesus? Or is it possible that this is just one of many different symbols of religious culture with which we start to identify and the substance of those things it's what's important those practices are not bad they're not evil it's just that they have no value next to what Jesus has done for us those things according to verse 16 through 19 they are simply the shadow meant to imply that Jesus is the light those things are superficial because Jesus is the substance. Right? I mean, I, I could be wrong, but like, who really is wealthy? You because you wear Sean John or Sean John. Right? Are you the cool one because you wear Louis Vuitton or carry Louis Vuitton? Or is Louis Vuitton cool? Right? I mean, fill in the names. I mean, even you know, I can think all the way back. My, my whole life is kind of marked by this, right? Who is really cool? Are you for wearing Tommy Hilfiger or, if some of you don't know what that is, are you cool because of Tommy Hilfiger or is Tommy Hilfiger the one who's really cool? Is Ralph Lauren cool or are you? And if you begin to think that you're as cool as the guy whose name you're carrying, you've missed the point. And if you think those symbols of wealth apply more to you than the guy that they named the thing after, you've missed out on an amazing thing. And our identity is meant to be found in Jesus, not just the symbols Christian culture he goes on he says Jesus ultimately is the thing so he says don't let anyone judge you on this it doesn't mean that people ought not to encourage one another and live in a certain way that's not true at all we saw that in verse 6 In the same way that you believe in Jesus you should walk and so the ways that we live ought to look like the thing that we believe that is that Jesus has done something that transforms us so it's not that you should just go and do anything at all it's just that you should do only what Jesus wants you to do So it says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. This is a word, we see it twice here. Asceticism is simply a practice of self-denial. It's a self-mortification. It's a value in suffering. And so asceticism is simply to say, don't enjoy the luxuries and riches because they would defile you and instead throw those things off. This is important. Jesus hinted at this to a guy by the name of the rich young ruler. And he came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I want to follow you. What do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus, wanting to point to himself, not to him, says, I'm glad you asked. Here's what you need to do. You need to drop everything you own, all your riches, sell them, give them to the poor, and then come follow me. And the guy wasn't able to do it because he valued his possessions so greatly. And so there is a sense in which our possessions, the things that we own, start to own us. The things that we think we control start to control us. The things we buy actually start to purchase our time and our investment. So there's a root of truth, there's a kernel, there's a nugget of truth in this. But even if you were to sell everything and give it to the poor and missed out on all that Jesus is, then you've wasted your time. There's no value in self-denial unless that self-denial is done in light of what Jesus has done for us. You can't buy or earn your way into this. And that's really good because God has created the world and said that it is good. Creation around us is good. I mean, think about the God who created like the apple, the strawberry. Right? He could have just created bland stuff that keeps us alive. And instead, our God was like, you know what? I'm going to give these people something to eat, but it's actually going to be great. Right? God gives us things like steak, bacon, things that are sweet, things that are tasty. Just stop for a minute and, and realize that God has created something as a gift for you and to me and to enjoy. And so to simply deny ourselves of these things doesn't mean that you're actually going to get anywhere. Any more than just because you stop eating sweets or unhealthy food, you all of a sudden get healthy. The denial of these things doesn't give you Jesus. Jesus ultimately denied all of these things. He emptied himself of the riches that he deserved and enjoyed in all of heaven to become broken, beaten, and shamefully hung on an old rugged cross for your sake and mine. So make no mistake about it. We ought to deny ourselves, but we ought to never deny ourselves in such a way that we imply that Jesus has not ultimately denied himself more than anything else. The ultimate sacrifice that has been made has been accomplished by Jesus Christ, not by you. So sacrifice, give, but if it undermines what Jesus has given and what Jesus has sacrificed, then you've missed it. You're looking at the shadow, not the light. You're looking at the superficial, not the substance. And according to this, you are looking at the elemental, that is the ABCs, the simple things, and you're not looking at the head of the church. The head that gives life. The head that controls all of the body, you and me, that nourishes and keeps everything together. Jesus has done something, and so let us focus more on him and what he has done than what anyone else has done. It's not that we should do nothing. Nothing. Because even as you notice, there's a lot of commands here, right? And, it, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to see this. There's a lot of commands given to you and to me by Paul and to this church. they look like this. Just even in this verse, he says things like, see to it. He says, don't let anyone judge. Don't let anyone disqualify. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. Put to death these things. You must rid yourselves of these things. Do not lie to one another. Clothe yourselves or put on these things. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Forgive, forgive. Put on more love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. Do all these things with thanksgiving. There's these orders about husbands, wives, marriage, families, slaves, masters, devotion, prayer, wisdom, conversations. It's not that we're supposed to do nothing. So if anyone comes to you and is like, hey, I love Jesus, so you can't tell me what to do. Careful. That's not true at all. There's a lot of things that you and I are, are commanded to do. But never in obeying those commands are we meant to look away from what Jesus has done toward what we have done. We ought to obey those commands. The law gives us a picture of how holy and perfect God is, but it also paints a picture of how unholy we are. So it doesn't mean you throw the the law and the rules out. It doesn't mean you do whatever you want. It just means that we value what Jesus has done and we do what He wants more than what anyone else tells you to do. So it says, let no one pass judgment. Let no one disqualify you. Let no one insist on these things. Because ultimately in verse 20, If Jesus Christ has died for these things and you have died with him, then these elemental things, these ABCs of the world, these ultimate, excuse me, these these primary things aren't meant to have power over us. We see this again in Galatians chapter 4. Somewhere else in the Bible, another letter to another church, they were struggling with the same thing. And Paul says to them, Look, to an heir, as long as the heir is a child, then the heir is no different from a slave even though He owns everything. But He is under the guardians and the managers until the date set by the Father, in which He's no longer the heir, He's the commander. Verse 3, Galatians chapter 4, in the same way, when you were children, when we were enslaved to the, the same word, elementary principles or elementary spirits of the world, enslaved to them, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under that law. In order to redeem those who were under the law, so that you and I might receive adoption as sons. Did you catch that? What Jesus has done adopted us into a family, not what you do. Follow all the rules you want. You will never be able to do what Jesus has done. It goes on later. It says, Formerly, when you didn't know God, that was you and me before we heard this good news of Jesus, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So even though they have power over us and we worship these things, ultimately they have no power. They're just idols. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves, now you want to be once more? And now you're observing days and months and seasons and years? It's our human nature, and apparently it's consistent in these first Christians. They struggled the same as we do, to obey and to do that which God wants us to do. But if there's a way in which we are obeying and looking to God to live our lives that makes light of how Jesus has lived His, then we've missed the point. It's not that we should do whatever we want. The point is that we should do only what Jesus wants. And that God can give us a desire to desire that which Jesus desires. And the substance, the identity that comes from knowing that Christ has changed us and beginning to walk in that has infinite joy and infinite value. But getting the shadow of things in front before what Jesus has done destroys the whole thing. What we believe and how we live that out is more important than the things that we do. And if we believe, naturally we'll begin to live that out. But there's a a way in which you could live and act that betrays what you believe, right? There's a superficial way of living. Think of it this way. Um, Think in terms of relationship. Say I'm talking with a guy and a girl, and they're married, and this husband punches his wife, right? Beats his wife. and there's a couple ways we can, we can like, talk about this. Hey, dude, don't do that anymore, right? But the problem isn't that he hits his wife. The problem is that he doesn't love his wife enough not to hit her. And so you can tell a guy, hey, control your, control your actions. Don't do that. But if you don't address his fault in love, his failure to love and cherish his wife, then what do you think is going to happen the next couple months, Is his will going to be able to restrain him? Here's what I do know. You teach a guy to love and cherish his wife. He's going to be a little less likely to hit her. And it's the difference as we see in gospel community between giving a person good advice and giving them good news. The good advice is, hey, stop doing that. And I could stand up here for 45 minutes and make a living off of that, right? Because there's a lot of stuff you and I do, we probably shouldn't do anymore, right? And for 45 minutes, I could stand up here and go, hey, Stop it. Don't do it. Quit it. Let's pray, right? I mean, that that, that could motivate you, but that's just good advice, and it will wear off whenever you forget to stop doing it. But Here's incredibly good news. God God is wanting to transform us, give us a new heart, a new love, a new joy that will affect the way we live in the same way that the guy who falls deeply in love with his wife will never raise his hand to her. And his fault isn't that he hits. The fault is that he does not love rightly. The fault isn't in his hand. The blame doesn't go to his fist. The blame goes to his heart. And if you focus all of our attention, if we focus all of our attention on that which we do with our hands and never address that which Jesus does in our heart, then we've missed the light and we're staring at the shadows. We've missed the substance. We're settling for that which is superficial. jesus has done something and it's bigger so that gives us freedom we don't have to judge people based on what we see right we don't have to judge people on whether or not they go to church right? we don't have to judge people on the things that we think have religious value what we do get is the opportunity to talk with people and share with people the substance of things and that is jesus christ who changes all things The temptation in the religious culture in which we now live is very evident here. And I'll close it up this way. If you and I were to play a pickup basketball game, all right, pickup basketball, let's just get together. If you're bad at basketball, this is even better for you. This is a good sports metaphor because if you hate basketball like me, this actually applies to you. So let's say we're in a pickup basketball game, we get together. And on your team in this pickup basketball game, lo and behold, a miracle. LeBron James, the greatest basketball player on earth right now, is on your team. And it's a pickup basketball game with people like you and like me, right? And yet Le- LeBron James is on my team. And if we're in a pickup basketball game with just kind of regular people playing basketball, I mean, some of you got some skills, some of you, you know, varying degrees of skills, some of you would be happy to catch the ball, right? Some of you would just cheer on the sidelines, but we're all playing basketball, but LeBron James is on my team. And if we're playing this pickup game, what should be my role in the pickup basketball game when LeBron James is on my team? The greatest basketball player in the world, he's on my team. What should be my role in defeating the other people in this room in a pickup basketball game? Like, should I? Hey, man, I got moves, man. I got moves. Come on. I mean, No. Your role in a pickup basketball game when LeBron James is on your team is to get out of the way and give him the ball. Just give him the ball. And then when you're done with that, give him the ball. And when you're done with that, get out of the way. And after that, give him the ball again. Because he's the greatest basketball player you are not. And how silly, how silly would you look How silly would we look if we didn't just get out of the way for the greatest basketball player to do his thing? How silly would a ball hog look if they wanted to show moves when all the while the greatest player is standing right there? And when you win and when the game's over, how silly would you look after winning, which you're going to do because, again, LeBron James is on your team. How silly would you look if at the end you were like, you're welcome. Pat me on the back. How silly would you look if you tried to take the credit for what LeBron James, the greatest basketball player in the world, did for you? Multiply that picture times a million and you begin to see infinitely more than your ability to play basketball compared to LeBron James is our ability to be right before God and Jesus'. Jesus has come And he wants to die in your place and nail that which has broken you to the cross. Bury that which is already dead in you and give you new life. And our job? Give him the ball. Let him do it. Should you think about critically what you drink, how you drink, what you eat, how we celebrate together? Yeah. You should. We should think seriously about that. But if we do so in such a way that points away from what Jesus has done, then we're like the idiot who thinks that he's better than LeBron James. And in the same way that we should just get out of the way and let LeBron work, so also we should just celebrate that which God has done in Jesus. Get out of the way and watch him work. And begin to walk in his footsteps. And every chance we get, we don't try to take it on ourselves and practice things on ourselves. We just put it up to Jesus. Every good sermon I give to you, hopefully, will not be good advice, but it will just be me passing it up to Jesus. Look to Him. He can save you. You know that thing you did that you regret? He can fix that. You know that thing that's broken in you, that haunts you all the time? He can fix it. He can give you a new life. That thing in you that's dying and just smells like decay and you're afraid for anyone to know about it? Look at Him. He wants to nail that thing to the cross and shame it. Don't look at me. Don't look at our practices. Look at Jesus. And since He's done something that is so awesome that's changed the world, let's focus more on what He has done Let's live in light of what he has done and let the rest fall into place. Let us be the kind of people that consider seriously how we live our lives, but let us never do it so in such a way that draws more attention to our lives than it draws attention to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, that you have done something completely and sufficiently in Jesus Christ. Uh, You have set us free in a way that we find it even dip- difficult to understand or comprehend. Uh, God, you have purchased for s- something for us that we could never afford on our own. So just like this church that Paul is speaking to, uh, let us be a group of people that, that point more toward Jesus and following him than we point toward the practices and traditions that we can conjure up for ourselves. Let us look more like Jesus than just really disciplined religious people. Because in the end, religion and discipline are not evil, but they don't save people. They have no ability to save. Only you do. So God, right now, if there's, if there's some in this room, I mean, they've just never heard this good news, and they've never known that Jesus did something this good for them, um, help them to sift through all the good advice that might give them temporary and fleeting happiness and see the good, no- the good news that gives us eternal joy and happiness. Forgive us if we've been distracted. We know you're good, but uh, forgive us if we've been distracted that we start to take over and we start to to focus more on what we want to do. May this week not be just another practice and failure and self-will, but instead may it be new life walking in the footsteps of Jesus. New life experience knowing that Jesus has done something bigger and greater than anything we could ask or imagine. Give us courage with this. Encourage. If there's some of us, we're down, we carry burdens. Let us toss those burdens up to you, knowing that you can carry them. You're greater than we are. If there's failure in our life, help us to confess it and repent of it, knowing that you you are merciful, you love, and you embrace uh, all of our failures so that you can nail those things to the cross. If we experience shame, let us get rid of it, um, knowing that the ultimate shame was carried by you so that we can only experience joy in light of it. We thank you for all these things you've done for us. Let it be bigger than anything we might do or try to do. Amen.